in this talk this morning I would like to deal to some degree of course with the area of the meditation practice and also to try to place it in its context As Jamie mentioned yesterday evening, there are these five areas, five foundations for an ethical basis for our life. And each one of these areas has been and still is traditionally regarded as important as the preparation for meditation and for the deeper aspects of the spiritual life. And on, the, on hearing each one of the five guidelines, shall we say, such as freedom from killing and harm, and freedom from stealing, from sexual exploitation, from lies, dishonesty, and from those things which affect body and mind, we see that there's a great... each one of these offers an opportunity for us to look more carefully at our relationship to each of these areas and therefore time and space and reflection becomes quite necessary and none of them are all that simple shall we say one might take for example the first one of freedom from killing and then looking at the whole area of our relationship to small creatures even to the extent also of looking at our relationship to our, to our diet, to, to meat-eating, and what the implications of that are for ourselves, both personally, of course, and, and socially. And one sees in our society, in such an area as, area as that, the degree of killing of animals which takes place, factory farming, and all the extensions of that. And it seems to me rather important to find time in our life to, to look with care in these areas and to come to some, hopefully, some balance of sensitivity and love. And one might take, too, the, the, the last one which mentioned of this way of relating to, <coughs> shall we say, the products of, of the world and being aware of their impact upon <coughs> ourselves, and one which really must be included, though traditionally not so, but I feel rather necessarily so, is the whole area of smoking. Again, a very difficult area, difficult area in, in so far as the, the conditioning and habits of the mind can affect and, and influence the reasoning of ourselves. And in this particular area, say for example, in Britain last year, some 98,000 people died from lung cancer. I mean, that's the size of one very large town. And those that weren't smoking, it seems, lived in the company of smokers. So there one has, again, a social, a personal and a social reality. And it requires looking at with much care and attention. You know, and, uh, apart from the fact, of course, the, 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 the exploitation of the tobacco workers, the, the, what, the, the, what the companies do in the third world at the present time, increasing the degree 
of tar and nicotine content to ink so that addiction comes more quickly. And so, in, as it were, in being involved in, in one area of life, one is also participating in another kind of reality. And as I say, it's not easy in these sensitive areas because one has to be mindful of other people's prejudice, of the degree of self-righteousness which can occur by, in this case, say, by non-smokers, and, and being just aware of both of the influences of our past, our conditioning which takes place, and sometimes the force of the conditioning can prevent us from stopping to look in a particular area. And practice, as I mentioned yesterday evening, is, is certainly one of bringing awareness into the foreground, even in these areas in our life which are difficult, for all the reasons that, that make them difficult. And the, the f one of the functions, shall we say, of the process of insight, and I'm not using it now in a, in a particularly um, confined way, such as insight meditation, the process of insight is such that it acts and serves as a link between an ethical foundation in life, what is called samadhi, I would call that um, a meditative awareness, and panya, so it's a Pali word which means wisdom and understanding. And so there are these three basic areas of, of life, ethics, meditative awareness and understanding, and the development of each one of those comes through observation, it comes through self-knowledge and insight, and through the development of each one, you and I can evolve as a human being. And any evolution of a person, a genuine evolution rather than a conceptual one, is one which certainly addresses directly as a daily life experience a relationship to a, shall we say, a virtuous or ethical way of existence, to a life of meditative awareness, to a life of understanding, and out of understanding, love must flower. So when so we're looking at these three areas, and of course in our period of time here, emphasizing very directly, I would say, each one of those. Obviously the social environment which you and I are creating here together helps and contributes, as it has done historically, to this development of each area. Now, in coming and contributing to a more meditative awareness and bringing our attention to that, we see too that our experiences, our, the events in our mind are, how should we say, all too frequently not as they ought to be, not as we would like them to be. And it, it's rather a characteristic of us as human, human beings that we would like to life, we'd like the world, and certainly would like ourselves to be one way, 
and we try to some degree or other to emphasize in that in our life and we find that the world, life and ourselves has an alarming habit of being the opposite. And so we have to pursue our life, as it were, in an endless um, contradiction of wanting one thing and experiencing t'other. And this is certainly no exception, as you may possibly have noticed in the last hour, <laughs> where in the particip- coming into the sitting with a certain degree of energy and motivation and willingness to in a way be exposed directly to one, oneself and finding that this exposure seems to reveal more thorns than roses. And there is a whole adjustment rather necessary to, which is taking place, adjusting to the thorns. Traditionally, these the difficulties which, which arise are regarded as hindrances. And to some degree, this word hindrances is the um, word which is, has been used, to some degree, hindrances imply, of course, that they act as a block, a block to something else. So, w- in other words, we come in and we, we sit down and in sitting down our mind, and I, when I'm talking of mind, I'm talking about the whole spectrum of a- mental activity. Mind and body don't cooperate. Um, I realize in giving a talk in the morning, and for many of you it's the first, um, having got up possibly considerably earlier, and I understand that the, there was quite some enthusiasm by the bell ringer this morning and it, the bell actually went at 5 o'clock instead of 5.30. So um, you might well be a little bit more tired than anticipated. Never mind, you're not missing anything in the talk. <laughs> <laughs> in coming into... In coming in to sit and in the adjustment which is taking place, the mind and the body and the tiredness or restlessness which occur, we see them or we interpret them as hindrances. And to some degree there is almost one might say within us, and J- Jamie was referring to this, um, there is a kind of intuitive sense, this is, one might call it greater awareness or if one is more ambitious, Buddha nature, um, there's an intuitive awareness that one can go beyond what's occurring, what is actually arising and, one I- and what one is experiencing. And so one senses these experiences, these mental, physical difficulties as real hindrances to the practice. But the danger is, of course, in regarding them as hindrances or as blocks as, or as something to be gotten rid of and the sooner the better, it tends to create quite some resistance in ourself to what we're experiencing. It's rather hard to go the other way and, and say, well, they're not hindrances. Wow, I'm experiencing so much pain, confusion, doubt, 
agitation, anxiety. This is great. <laughs> it's hard to switch the mind over, as it were, to to being free from hindrances and 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 say and giving uh, a great welcome to uh, what's experiencing. But one of the things which is important evolutionary wise, spiritually wise, inwardly wise, is not only what's occurring, what you are actually experiencing, but what is important, and some of us might say even more important, is the relationship to the event. The relationship to the psychological, physical event. That is even more significant than the content than the stuff which is arising. The Buddha, in his wisdom, spoke of the Eightfold Path, the first one, right understanding, and the second one, right after it, is called Samma Samkalpa, right attitude of mind. Right meaning appropriate, useful, helpful. Attitude of mind to what one is experiencing. <coughs> now, just by the motivation to come and sit in the meditation hall, and to stay with what one is experiencing, the, the energy and the effort and the application to stay in touch with the event is the development of an attitude of mind of wishing to keep in contact with. And it's that cultivation which helps us and contributes to our seeing through the difficulties arise and certainly on the first day, or first day or two, the difficulties which arise tend to be almost across the board. Meaning, whether one is, or likes to consider oneself an experienced meditator, or whether one has just come into a situa this situation for the first time, two of the common forms of difficulty is the tiredness which arises physical, mental, in all areas of oneself. And the other is the restlessness, the discomfort, um, the physical pain. And one might almost be tempted to say, if you don't have any restlessness, uh, tiredness, or discomfort at all today, there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take it too far, but anyway, you see what I mean. <laughs> So there's, in this coming into a situation, like we're uh, experiencing here, there are simple ways and means of working with the two. That means tiredness and restlessness. And it's not obviously only that one experiences these conditions here. One experiences in them in daily life too just as easily, just as frequently, and in a, in a variety of settings. Question arises, when you are experiencing that form, what's your relationship like to yourself and to 
the situation which you find yourself in. How much, if one is feeling restless and agitated, how much do you buy into your perceptions of you, another, the work, the home, the past, the future, when it's coming from that kind of inner agitation? How much do you believe in those perceptions? And similarly with, with tiredness, and so easily there is tiredness, it's not acknowledged as an experience, and out of that tiredness it can produce so many other kinds of reactions. It can produce avoidance, it can produce speediness, it, uh, it can produce um, anxiety, etc., etc. Because within the field of tiredness, mental and physical, there's a lot of vulnerability. And that vulnerability within the scope of the tiredness leads to carelessness, and carelessness leads as a fruit to suffering. So in a life situation as here, we're trying to address what we experience, work and stay with that so that it doesn't lead to places which are painful. To ignore produces suffering. This is a, a reality of life. To ignore produces suffering. Let's, d let's have a look at the, the tiredness which comes. <coughs> Remember, it's the relationship to it which is important. Sometimes, just some slight change in what one is doing releases a little bit more energy and it's adequate enough to maintain some degree of mindfulness and observation. It might be something just as simple as just sitting and having the eyes open. It might be sitting and stretching out the body and having, instead of the hands uh, in the lap, having the hands on the ends of the knees. So feeling a little bit more of the whole posture, a little bit more upright and straight. It might be just raising the hands and say resting them on the, on the head for a few minutes in the course of the sitting. Helps to lift the energy up, helps to clear some of that tiredness away from the consciousness. It might be, as we would use in um, Thailand, just sitting and move the hand up and down through the air, just giving attention to that. Just a way of cutting through some of the drowsiness which consumes our attention. Just a very simple exercise of the hand moving up and down through the air. Sometimes a person may just use them in here, just very quietly of course, just go from the sitting posture to the standing posture. Just standing and, and being in touch with the standing. Again, helps to maintain an energy flow there. Of course, one may be ex ex feeling very, very tired. If so, then, then um, not in here, please. Um, use the uh, horizontal posture 
for for a, a while. Sometimes, when tiredness has a real persistent characteristic to it, it's just not going away. It's in one sitting, it's in the next sitting, it's in the first day, it's in the second day, it's in the third day. It may be that the tiredness, that the waves, the clouds which come, are an, an avoidance mechanism. It's a kind of self-protective factor. It's a, it's a reaction of the ego to stop ourselves dealing with something inside. And, and because we don't want to face it, we, as it were, unconsciously send up a cloud, we lose ourselves in that, our mind feels very dull, very foggy, and it's a way of saving ourselves getting into contact with something inside. May not be anything very dramatic or very intense or suppressed, but nevertheless, our mind can create that situation. So keeping a watch, mindfulness, with regard to the tiredness which we may be uh, experiencing. And as I say, sometimes one just needs to have a rest. Sometimes one just needs to uh, have a, a, sh uh, a shower or a naturopath way, which is quite effective, is just putting one's feet in cold water. It really has a, a, a useful stimulating effect on the whole body and sometimes the tightness can just clear very quickly. As I found out last night before coming in. <laughs> Another area which we experience in life, and life pleases here as much as anywhere else, the question often arises, you know, what about when we go back into the real world? Well, some of us spend much rather a, a, a lot of our year in these meditation retreat situations and it's just as real or unreal, whichever you like, as uh, the world out, outside. And in coming into a situation, there's the restlessness and the pain which occurs in the sitting. And again, in working with that, and we'll speak more about that of course as the time goes by, in working with restlessness and pain which, which arises, the breathing can be a very useful resource. And, 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 and it seems to me that's r rather important, to regard attention to the breathing as a resource in life, one which is all too infrequently applied and used. Sometimes when the restlessness arises, after one has been sitting for a period of time, it produces more and more thoughts. And <coughs> the thoughts can obviously take many different forms. Sometimes it's in complaints or agitations, and, and sometimes a very common one uh, is in the form of doubt. And one of the doubts which um, arises is what I usually refer to as the doubt of the... Um, comes in the form of a, a, a five-worded mantra. And basically the mantra is, what am I doing here? <laughs> so this, this uh, arises, and the more pain and the more discomfort that arises, the more frequent this mantra com comes up. And it's a good one. 
<laughs> and generally speaking, the intensity of the mantra d diminishes as one settles in. And it's just part of the uh, discomfort and the agitation which comes, and that manifests alongside it. In working with the breathing and making that the, the primary uh, object, the breath is such that if we make the breath a little bit longer and deeper, and particularly plenty of relaxation on the outgoing breath, it can contribute quite noticeably to settling in in meditation. Breathing in long, making the breath full, experiencing the lungs um, filling up with air, and then on the outgoing breath, really being conscious of the outgoing breath and plenty of relaxation, so that one has this growing capacity to settle in. Remembering that one is not only settling into oneself, which is a considerable human achievement, but also settling into life itself. Because life is here. And the moment is what we have. The moment is all that we have to work with. And it may not seem much, but it's enough for compassion and liberation. So, in working with the restless and restlessness and discomfort arises, using the outgoing breathing, if you have to make some adjustment in the posture, please do it mindfully and slowly. So that, say there's a lot of pain in the knees, just changing the posture, and coming back as early as possible to the original posture. So that one does develop a sense through the course of the sitting, that the primary object, and this is where the inner discipline comes in, the primary object is the breathing. And everything else, for the time being, is certainly very secondary. So that our mind develops a way of just working and staying with the breath. Because when we're speaking of meditation or a life of awareness, what we're speaking of really is calmness of body connected with observation of mind. Now, quite often in life, we don't have these two going together. It's not unusual, particularly people uh, working and particularly uh, head work or focused work, that can be a great capacity to focus, to be attentive to what one is doing in the field in which one has responsibility or interest. But the b one may be quite out of touch with the body. Body is holding, tightened, tense, etc. And in the field, in the area of leisure, there may be plenty of relaxation of the body, in just hanging out or enjoying oneself in, a, in the field of leisure and the physical experience that goes with it, but the mind can be all over the place. And so meditation practice is, is really the bringing more and more together of attentiveness of mind with calmness of body. And if the sense of that is really cultivated in one's life and fully and deeply, this 
bizarre division in life between work and leisure can get considerably reduced. The division between, oh God, it's Monday morning, and thank God it's Saturday evening, that is so much related to uh, the relationship which we have with ourselves, of our mind-body relationship. Um, I would say, um, in this area, one of the tendencies which we have, and has in the meditation course, is to um, early and, all and frequently t to pursue the most comfortable. And one of the ways that this can be expressed here in the meditation room um, is that the wall becomes increasingly more attractive. <laughs> and one finds oneself developing more of a, a relationship with the wall than <laughs> with oneself. Now, some people by need, by necessity, and I think particularly of people with a back difficulty, need, do and may well need a support, and a wall and perhaps a pillow between oneself and the wall can be very helpful. But if one doesn't have any history of that, then I would say, please create, in your sittings, space between oneself and the wall. Don't lean on anything in life. And in that giving more care and attention to our practice, to our sitting, to the development of our uh, attentiveness of mind, we can develop a relationship of awareness, let us say, of the tiredness, awareness of restlessness and discomfort, working with that using the breathing as a, a primary support. In the walking meditation, it sometimes is viewed, I feel rather um, unnecessarily so, as a kind of um, um, light relief from the terror of sitting. <laughs> and it's not really to be viewed, hopefully, um, quite in that way that the walking meditation itself is a full and complete and potentially very nourishing form of experience. The main thing with it is, like with things, what's our relationship to this? Now, as I mentioned, initially when one does it, and particularly when one sees other people does it, it does look rather bizarre. And the slower the walking is, the more bizarre it can tend to be. I um, was talking about this a little bit in the car yesterday. Jamie has recently uh, completed uh, a three-month retreat with Upandita, one of the uh, Burmese teachers at the center in, uh, on the east, east Coast. And Jamie earned himself the reputation of, of being the slowest of the slow with the, the walking uh, practice. And it does look you know, rather, rather strange, this very slow walking, but my feeling is, well, since we do so many other bizarre things in our life, <laughs> one more is not going <laughs> to make it anyway. <laughs> so, so if I um, 
may, um, I'll give um, a small uh, demonstra demonstration of it. Only to serve as a, a reminder to you. And basically the posture is just standing and being very straight. Might be useful just to find a place where one can do the walking practice in the same place uh, each walking session. And the hands can be in where, where you wish, and some people like them down at the side, or some people just in front, or as uh, our Zen brothers and sisters, I like to uh, walk, walk in this way. But whatever, the m primary <coughs> uh, area of the body, the bulk of the body, in fact, remains very, very still. So there is, in the walking, the minimal amount of movement. And the eyes are simply used to see where you are going, not to examine the quality of your toenails or other people's. <laughs> so it's just standing very still and it's just then just walking. Just very slow walking. And you're just experiencing your feet touching the ground. There's a certain kind of quietness of being there, certain balance there. And when one is turning, just being aware of what coming up, touching, coming up, touching. Mind wanders and drifts away, and one expresses that quiet inner discipline of bringing the attention back to what's happening. And that's the discipline of meditation. Similarly, when coming into the meditation hall, again, just mindfully and slowly, just being aware of that whole movement in the sitting practice. And that can contribute in a useful and direct way to a sense of continuity of meditation in that alternating between our sitting and our walking practice. If in the walking practice the mind is you know, rather out to lunch a lot or looking forward to it, then perhaps just to use some concepts to help bring the attention back to the walking. Now that may be just walking, walking, just using the concept as you take each step. It may be, as is used in the Burmese tradition, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And in that practice of using the walking meditation, the concept can be helpful, but again, as you begin to settle in, letting go of the concept. So it's just experiencing, just experiencing, and as much as possible at the moment-to-moment -moment level. In both the, the sitting meditation and, and the walking meditation, the emphasis is very, very similar, of wholehearted attention to the present, 
when you begin to m attention begins to move away, just being aware of where it's gone to, that's self-knowledge, bringing the attention back to the present moment. Now sometimes, of course, it, uh, it occurs in the course of the meditation that things begin to arise, things are very difficult in any way for you and you're having a hard or stressful time, please come and find uh, Jamie or I or leave us a note. Sometimes strong emotions ar arise. And I realize in an atmosphere like we have here, a rather silent, contemplative atmosphere, that it can seem rather inappropriate if uh, in terms of emotion comes or cr need for crying takes place. But if that's what's happening to you and you're in the meditation hall, it's okay. That's what's happening. Just allow that to happen. And in the way of the, the practice, just in conclusion now, as I mentioned, giving this sense of continuity through the whole day. Life keeps meeting you, keeps meeting me, we keep meeting life and we're endeavouring to develop a more clear relationship to it. So that these three areas of an ethical foundation in one's life, we explore that, <coughs> meditative awareness in life, and more clarity and understanding, <coughs> that these become very important, some rather indispensable themes for existence. For without those themes in existence, there's no hope. And with those themes, there is hope. May all beings live with inner awareness. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life.